Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Refreshed Gallery 44 podcast. I'm your host, Lillian O'Brien Davis, curator of exhibitions and public programs at Gallery 44. This year, we're digging deeper into the programming we've created in our physical space, exploring each exhibition in depth with the artists who've created the work. This season, we'll also be exploring how to ask a question. I'm interested in exploring how I can get better at asking questions, learning how to speak up at the right moments, shaking off imposter syndrome, and managing the pressure of always looking ahead to the next thing. I'm here to be more present, slowing down to build better connections. Join me, and maybe we can figure things out together. Today I'm speaking with Tia Simone Gardner, an interdisciplinary artist, educator, and Black feminist scholar, working primarily with drawing images, archives, and spaces. Gardner has made a practice of tracing Blackness in landscapes, above and below the ground surface, through her work with still and moving images. She brings together fragments of things and lives alongside the events and the places to which they gave meaning. Ritual, disobedience, geography, and geology are the specters and reoccurring themes that cross her work. Gardner's exhibition, Dark and Perfect Memories, is her first Canadian exhibition. The exhibition explores the legacy of the Mississippi River, the second largest watershed in North America, its relationship to the transatlantic slave trade, and the development of the United States economy. Gardner uses archival documentation and digital mapping technology to reflect on how the river is a tool of enclosure within the slavery industrial complex. The Mississippi River is the basis of the carceral landscape. The riverboats represent technologies of transportation and enclosure. Landscape is used as a tool of oppression, involving the formation of oppositional geography where Black people are treated as economic objects. The slave ship is a location of Black subjectivity, human terror, and Black resistance. Welcome, Tia. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The first thing I want to talk to you about is the title uh, for your exhibition, which comes from Toni Morrison's essay, The Side of Memory. Morrison writes, all water has a perfect memory and is forever trying to get back to where it was. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what drew you to this title. Yeah, I had been, um, oh, I read that essay a long time ago. I believe it was a part of her acceptance for the poet laureate, I think, that where she starts talking about the Mississippi really drew me in. The larger essay is talking through like how we understand the stories that Black folks told about place, really, that you have in like the WPA oral histories, things that we can't fully explain, like people who could fly. <laughs> or people who could walk on water. And instead of discounting those truths, uh, and and in when you have things that we understand even to be quote unquote fiction, she's like, let's, let's not discount those truths for things that we can sort of prove as facts because like here are, you know, a whole slew of evidence 
that we have some rift between fact and truth. And so when she started talking about the the Mississippi, I, you know, like I think there's, we could think about that even there, that we have this, you know, body of water that's been industrialized, that has been changed and changed and changed. And you look at the landscape and you have, you know, like the fact of its boundaries, but that's not necessarily where it wants to live. And I like that sort of, uh, that kind of call to remember and think about, you know, how we understand what the landscape is, what kind of stories it holds and what we can learn from that if we sort of slow down and observe. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm like immediately tempted to go off script um, based on what you were just saying. Yeah. Let's have a conversation. Yeah. Let's have a conversation. And, um, you know, well, I I've watched the there's something in the water a couple of times just kind of as I'm writing about the show and and thinking about the exhibition and there's the scene um, or the footage from Saint John's Eve mm-hmm. um, and in the footage the captions discuss Lavo mm-hmm. um, and so I was reading about her a little bit and when you talk about the sort of like you know, perfect memory and, and these things that can't be explained. Um, she kind of immediately sprung to mind as this, this sort of like real human, but also like mythic figure who sort of continues to resonate today with people who will go and visit her grave. But I'm being kind of intentionally vague because I'm hoping you could tell me a little bit more about her and like that um, part of the work. Yeah, I can, I can try a little bit. Um, and I'll admit, you know, like I think she she's she's like a folk hero and a medicine woman and, you know, this sort of sultry queen at the same. She's all these things. I was down in New Orleans and I started reading Zora Neale Hurston's book. I think it's Mules and Men. And there's a section on hoodoo. Mm-hmm. And she goes to interview Marie Laveau's like great nephew or something like that. And he starts to tell her how she would like these rituals that she would do. And I think that I've read like a whole range of things about Marie Laveau and she was mixed race. And I've read once about this is. There's so many, and I don't want to go into too much minutia, but like there's, there's this um, history of a of a practice as somewhat like concubinage called plassage, um, where you know plantation owners might have a mistress who had their you know had their kids, and there's some writing about like Marie Laveau being um, one of these. Black women who would go to these balls, cotillions, and um, lived in that world of plissage. However she does it, though, she exercises a lot of power uh, over people, you know, and like we could sort of say like whether that is spiritual power, spatial power, psychic power. Um, She exercises a lot of power with people. And I read that 
you know, short piece in that Zora Neale Hurston book and immediately started thinking about these, all the things that we have read and know about Black women and Black people being drowned in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And so this scene, you know, of this, what from the, the, the short video is of a baptism and like all of that water life, water birth, water death came up while well, I was watching the um, the archival footage. And I went back to that writing about Marie Laveau and the these like drowned, these drowned girls. The idea of like going into the water, nobody sees her, <laughs> you know, and then she comes back, you know, Marie Laveau comes back. Um, that's like, it's fascinating to me. You know, uh, yeah, she comes out out of the water with like burning candles, like on her head and in her hands, I think. So mm-hmm. these sort of, like spectacular events. Yeah. When I was Googling it, I saw that there was, you know, um, other reports about the the uh, events and this particular feast day by like white onlookers. And they would sort of like... Um, exaggerate in order to kind of suggest all of these sensational like aspects to these kinds of rituals as a, as a fear response, basically to, to say that these are dangerous and, and, you know, uh, uncivilized. Uh, yeah. Or, yeah. Know, and demonic and, you know, like all of the, all of that, all of that. And, you know, again, like there's that tension between Facts and truths, you know, and like, because the ritual is not for nothing. Coming to ceremony is never for nothing. But how the witness makes sense of what they're seeing determines so much about how we know what we know, you know, like which story do we inherit? Which witness account do we sort of take as um, the honest truth? And I, uh, yeah, like I, like that, it all, so it sort of feels like it collides because mm-hmm. uh, you, yeah, you have those witness statements and then you, you have these other kinds of witness statements about throwing, you know, throwing people off the, the decks of ships and for insurance or, you know, like that. I, I don't know. Like I, I think all of those things around like testimony and archive and, the history that water holds for us, like I, I think they all like run into each other in some powerful ways. That you know, but I, I'm still I struggle myself to articulate them fully. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that Morrison writes about in that essay is she talks about the kind of early slave memoirs, like you know, Equianu and Frederick Douglass, um, mm-hmm. etc., and and how they're writing like they sort of they do this trick of memory where they say like well I won't go into it or you know that is you know I won't I will say no more about it and it it glosses over sort of the some of the extreme violence and Mm -hmm. it's meant to be a symbol of civilization I guess to kind of be like oh I won't offend your sensibilities by speaking to it Mm -hmm. but what happens is that there, like a gap, there becomes this gap that forms because there's there's nothing to address what is in that silence. 
Mm-hmm. And and I I think that like the I'm intrigued about that that practice or how that it kind of appears also in your work too with and the water being maybe a that site or a site for that. Um and I'm thinking specifically about like yeah, what you're talking about, like the water birth and also water death and kind of the significance of going for a baptism in a river where many of your family, friends, compatriots have died and, and, and sort of this like site of like carcerality, which as, as you describe, but, but also just like, like um, the kind of emotional impact of, of doing something like that or having that, like going through those practices. Yeah, that's really, yeah, I appreciate that. I, um, you know, like Toni Morrison is like, hands down like my favorite writer and like parts of that essay that you're talking about. Yeah, like she's talking, addressing this, what she calls the unspeakable, but there are these horrors that were so big that they there was no, no sort of speech. There was no space and language to describe them and so there were these sort of holes left and I think you know what we've seen from people like Sadia Hartman where she she talks she takes that challenge of the unspeakable and talks about um, critical fabulation Mm -hmm. you know and I think a lot a lot a lot of artists have picked picked up on that um that part of the work and that part of her like contribution to black studies and black theory. And I also am like fascinated by it. I do think something is shifting. It hasn't shifted in me yet, but there is, there is something that like um, moving image can do you know, when we think about like the capacity of language, right? Or what's even utterable, that images, maybe moving images specifically, start to skirt around the edges of feeling. So like you might not be able to find speech in it, but I think that's like sensual, like what all the senses try to do for us. Mm-hmm. Um, is some of that like critical fabulation because mm-hmm. like you sort of like when I saw that baptism scene for the first time I had this immediate feeling of like horror right that like a woman is it what it looks like is it looks like a woman is being forcibly baptized and then I was like Oh, but did she did she catch the Holy Spirit? And like, what does that? You know, like that's a part of black baptism and like black spiritual traditions where I'm from. And it doesn't look gentle, you know, like it it doesn't, it looks actually kind of frightening. Um, and then I was like, oh, you know, like did something in her flesh like remember? Like the like all of these like water deaths. I don't know. And so I think 
all of those like small gaps that we have uh, from like the inherited stories that we that we have open up these possibilities. And sometimes I wouldn't be able to write it, but I might be able to photograph it or I might be able to draw it or I might, you know, I might be able to hear it even or like, like find it that way or give articulation to it that way. Um, and that that is like the the slowest practice of all. And sometimes you don't you don't have the patience or the or the time even to to just sort of sit and wait. Yeah. <laughs> I think about that a lot. I think about that a lot. Is that like there's these things that I I wish sometimes I was faster, you know, or I wish I wish sometimes like um things coalesced quicker. Cause it took me months to <laughs> it took me months that like I don't know, 10 seconds of footage. I had sat with that for months and then it was like oh, you need to slow it down. And oh, here's like all of the things from the text that you understand. And like, this is why this is sticking out. It took such a long time for those things that now, you know, I can like talk about to come up. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it happens after the fact, like it happens when the show is up. Um, Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I definitely don't think you're alone. <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know. It's just like it, those those are the things. Um, those are honestly the, the things that I try, I'm trying to be more attentive to now because I know that there's just like the, the ritual of going to sit in front of the work every day makes those things happen you know, the observation, the connections, like it, it draws them out quicker. Yeah. 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 Um, so I have a, I have a couple questions sort of, I think related to like moving image and photography. So I'm going to squeak them in. Um, so something you said, uh, I think when we met last week or maybe the week before, um, and you'd been thinking about how photography has been used in the conquest of nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really struck by that observation. I think I thought it was really resonant to the project, but also just sort of like a a kind of important observation as someone working in the medium. Yeah, and yeah. So I was wondering um, if you could just tell me a little bit about your relationship with photography and image making um, in your artist practice. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks for that question. Question. I um, I don't tend to call myself a photographer because, like, photographers are like serious. <laughs> no, like they're just like really like serious about photography, right? Um, which I totally admire and totally appreciate, and it's often like. I like pull back. I do say that um, I work with images because like I I do make photographs, but I also work with archival material. You know, like I 
find things. I find other people's images sometimes. And like those things are more interesting to me than what I could do. And so I, um, I have been, I, I, like I had a friend of mine who's like an amazing photographer, uh, Monica Moses Holler, sent me this essay by Teju Cole. I think it's called When Photography Was a Tool of Colonialism and Still Is, or it's something like that. And I just like was like, oh, wow, that's, you know, like there's so much, you know, like there's so much in writing about and making photography that constantly wants to address the archive of inherited images that we have, you know, like Ariella Azoulay's writing, like those, they, I think coming from a place that I'm like geographically from the South and I'm trying to understand how, why, when, and for what purpose that place has been photographed so much and why, you know, people could readily identify Birmingham, Alabama, where I'm from, from photographs of 1965. But if I showed people images of Birmingham now, it's unrecognizable. Cause like, we don't like the kind of the political spectacle around those images has changed, you know, like, and I, and that place has changed. And, and there's a way that like I'm fascinated with how like photography literally freezes places and times in time um, and like how much people get stuck there, you know? And so I have, you know, I have a, a odd number of friends now who are photographers also. And so like, I feel like those are the conversations I'm in the most is like, well, what can a photograph do and what can't it do? You know, and I, um, you know, in, in thinking about all of the images that have been made about the place I'm from and how that is like, you know, it's so, there's like, people are so drawn to, to, to that, like the black and white violence of it all that I, uh, and yet are also like absent from what's happening right now, like what's happening right now on the ground in so much of, you know, the South, not just even Alabama even. And so I, um, I am always like hyper aware of, you know, that, yeah, photographs were used to, um, make these pictorial histories of the landscape as empty, right? Like that it's unpopulated and therefore can be settled or, or that we're documenting the natives so that we can civilize them and like we can send those things around. Or that like there is this sort of proto-pornographic mm-hmm. way of seeing women, you know, like women from in colonized places that was always exotic always sexualized regardless of you know how old those how old they were and that those all of those ideas travel and circulate in spite of what continues to change in in a place in spite of who is you know 
pushed out of a place like those things keep moving around with with images and like I um that's just like fascinating to me you know like I've never been I've never been like really interested I love drawing but like I don't think drawing does that in the same way or like the questions that come up around drawing are really different for me than the things that come up around photography. Uh, and the way I use drawing is different from the mm-hmm. way I use photography. Um, yeah. And so I, um, yeah, I, I feel like I, I, I feel like I want to, um, make good photographs. Uh, but like, I, I also feel like, gosh, like I, like I'm, I, I could keep making photographs for another 20 years and never feel like I'm a photographer, you know, like it's, um, it's, it's like a, it's a hard, it's a hard medium to, uh, like to own, to own. Yeah. Like it's, it really is. It really is. You know, and you know, like it's the youngest of the things like other than like, dig- I mean, it's proto digital, right? Like yeah. in spite of like photography, you know, like it's like a 20th century thing that, that uh, when like masses, masses of people could access it, right? Painting's been around forever. <laughs> Drawing and sculpture have been around literally for at, like, since, you know, people could move rocks around in the ground and so like I uh it's crazy that that's the that's the thing that's so it's 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 so intimidating in spite of it's like short life but it's like really fascinating you know it's like really fascinating yeah it it really is like the the more I sort of work um in like a kind of curatorial role that focuses on photography and lens space like the the curiouser and curiouser it becomes and um I also think like as you're talking I'm thinking like you know it's also a medium like dominated by men and and it's a colonial medium in that uh yeah it's it was used as a tool of conquest as you say like you know going to um you know British colonies and documenting the people that were found there in a way that sort of furthered imperialist agendas. So to say, oh, look, it's empty. <laughs> There's yeah. no one around when like behind them, there was a village, but in front of them, there was just a nice vista and they're framing it in this way to say, there's exactly. no one here. Let's, uh, let's move in. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's such a charged, like it's a charged medium and a charged practice. And, and um yeah, it's, I'm, I'm like, it's, it, there's no kind of like solve, I think, but it's just like, um, it's like a interesting thing to continue to like think, to, to think through. Um, and so one of the other things that sort of like along this line, like, you know, um, from our earlier conversations, how taken I am with like the body cam footage in, Mm -hmm. in your film, um, so while we were speaking about it, I was like frantically looking for a specific passage from Simone Brown's Dark Matters. Um, and the specific passage talks about the view from under the hatches. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, um, I'll share I'll share the link to the quote. So I, I'm not going to go that into it. 
But um, Brown asks us to think about what happens when we center the conditions of Blackness when we theorize surveillance. Um, and for me, this addresses many points in this exhibition with your interest in the site of the slave ship and the riverboat, mm-hmm. um, and also the body cam video. Um, so, um, yeah, this piece really affected me deeply. And yeah. I was hoping we could talk about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I um, I love Simone Brown's work. And um, I had that that body camera work came out of I get, I get these are the slow processes right like mm-hmm. I was in I wanted to go on a journey on the Mississippi River I moved to Minnesota in 2013 and it I had never lived this close to the river like I can I can walk to the river right now you yeah, and and I'll tell you why. Like it's complicated, but um, I started thinking again about like these um stories we have of places like uh, Eagle Landing and South Carolina, where you have a story of enslaved folks being brought on a ship to coastal Carolinas and seeing, like metaphorically and literally what was in front of them and refusing that and walking back home on water. It came up to me as a question being so far from, like I didn't realize that Minnesota was damn near Canada. I didn't realize that until I came to visit and I was like, oh my God, like this, like Midwest, like it's not, (laughs) it's not the Midwest. Like this is, and, you know, I was like, this was Canada. <laughs> like, what? Where am I? And I, you know, literally was thinking like, it's really like, how do you get home? You know, as like a question. And so I started um, conceptualizing that. And thinking about the story of Ebo Landing, like, could I send something down river? Could it make it to the south? And could it make it to the Gulf? Um, and started poking around asking um, engineers and coders about ha- like how could I how do I track that knowing that it's a form of surveillance but then like the deep the depth of the surveillance changed talking to them because like there's like several systems that have to work to make a GPS <laughs> and I was like oh this is this is fascinating um, you live with this thing every day and you don't realize who's getting a signal to what and like that it that having a reliable ping takes a like it takes a lot of work but like it's been so sophisticated that now it doesn't take a lot of work anyway but um basically like people were like you're going to lose them so then it, then it became like you need you still need to rely on human helpers if you're going to try to do something like that. So you send something off knowing it could literally get lost in the weeds and hoping that someone will find it for you probably by accident, but maybe on purpose, if you can sort of know what its last coordinates were, all of this stuff. 
all of this stuff, you know, that like feels like deeply connected to um, maroonage, you know, that you set out trying to get to a place that, that you've heard about not knowing what's going to happen and, and needing a network of people to support your journey. And so I um, got, I, I wrote to, I wrote to an organization, an amazing organization in New Orleans that does artist residencies called Studio in the Woods. And um, they were like, hey, come on down, <laughs> you know, come, come on down. Let's see what you can do. I was like going to make these toys, like take these toys and make these little like devices that could travel the water and take images. And um, when I got there, like I started talking to people and had like, it was really great. Um, But this is also, you know, that's why you have to like, things are slow and collaboration is helpful. Like I started talking to people. and had body cameras like and I decided you know at that time New Orleans was considering a new law or ordinance I'm not sure but it would allow the police to use any and all surveillance footage meaning like the convenience store on the corner which is a privately owned business but has a surveillance camera that the police could then use that in policing or traffic cameras that are like really just supposed to take your license plate could be used to like, you know, um, observe what's happening on like corners. And so I um, was aware of like how I would move around that place with these surveillance devices and decided to like try not to turn them on people, but to use them for landscape photography. And in all of that footage, like I have two and I'm using them. There's two that I sort of place back to back. And I would take these walks along the levee so that you did see almost a 360 view. Um, And then end, end up using like we we took me and a friend took drives. And so like I would take some uh, body cam footage on our drives and we just we found like really surprising things. But that work also, you know, like the eye of the camera is always like mechanical, like in those devices on something like a body camera you don't actually see what you're filming until after you've processed it. And I like that like unsighted or it's almost like cameraless photography because you're not, you don't have your own eye to guide you. And like the machine is just doing it. Um, But, you know, it's also like, so it was really individual, you know, like only like I had the cameras, I had my body, even though the cameras turned away from my body. And like after we did a design charrette to sort of think through, well, what is the device? You know, like we're trying to draw people into the landscape physically onto the river. Um, what's the device? And the camera, 
like this floating camera obscura project came up mm-hmm. out of that, which was like a, a human scaled cam- camera box. It's a cinema box um, that you can walk into. And so you're like literally inside the camera and you're on water. So it's not, you know, this sort of stable, fixed foundation. And that project is ongoing. You know, uh, it still has to do with surveillance, but it's a different kind of like the, the speed of that is very slow. You have to wait for your eyes to adjust to see the landscape around you. And it's shared, you know, like I really like that part that it's it's shared. And I, I think it's certainly connected to um, the practice of surveillance, like to see, you know, to see out, to see above. But it's a little different from the the body camera footage, which I'm st- I'm still like fascinated with, and I st- I still have them, but I oddly have not like t- I haven't taken them out here. Which like this might be getting into minutia, but like what I you know what I photograph in the Twin Cities since the uprisings is is like super it's very particular, um, and I don't and and a part of that is you know like this this you know there were dr- like predator drones and flying over the city, helicopters flying over the city, um. Some of those images we have, some we don't. And I, I don't know. I like. I think about. I think about that and like what to do next with the surveillance body camera, cameras, um, and what I want to see in them, in the future work, because like that, like photographing and moving around. New Orleans was different somehow. Part part of it is because like I'm so much less familiar with it, even after, I guess four years now. Like I'm, there's still more and more and more to know about both places. Um, but I live and walk around St. Paul every day in a way I don't. New Orleans, and so mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered your question, <laughs> but uh, you will tell me if I didn't. <laughs> You definitely did. I I think like I'm so interested in sort of like the genesis for that project, which you talked about, um, and and sort of the the charged nature of a body cam, um, having that on your own person. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm really interested, you know, talking about um like for our Canadian listeners, I I imagine that you're referring to the kind of summer 2020. Yes. Um, uprising and, and protests uh in Minneapolis. Yeah. Um so and that's something that um as Canadians we we were watching and and oh. there there's a lot of sort of um there was a lot of protest and action here as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of that sort of like um if there's osmosis uh um and, and Americans were aware of that as much but um yeah there's sort of like a uh 
and a summer of like high emotion and action. Um, And so, um, yeah, I I think that's such an interesting observation because you were making this work, you know, I think that residency was 2018. Uh, Yeah. So then two years later, sort of like revisiting your interest in these body cams and surveillance, but having it be, be during like a period where you on your daily routine are, you know, likely to encounter, encounter these, um, kind of militarized surveillance weapons. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's sort of like, I, yeah, it's hard to, hard to kind of, it's hard to describe. It's hard to kind of, um, it's hard to conceptualize. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, and I, I will say like when, when the uprisings happened in 2020, I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was a whole other, a whole other set of like history, landscape, and Black terror. You know, like there was a whole other thing happening. Yeah. But then when I came back, like late that summer, I was in a residency. And uh, when I came back late that summer from Tulsa, you can still see it, you know, like I didn't, I chose not to photograph things uh, because like, and I think that's another thing about like not being a photographer is like, even like some of my photographer friends, the way that they coped with that was to go out every day for a walk and take photographs. Whether they show those photos to people or not was, you know, they, it didn't, you know, but um, a f- one friend like specifically was like s- would send me things every day, mm-hmm. and I um, I the scars from that uprising from you know both you know police and civilian activity were still really present. Some of them still are just capitalism moves so fast to change, you know, the, 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 um, like it moves really with precision to like heal, like suture the wound. Right. <laughs> like it, it, yeah. But there are some wounds that like are, if you know what you're looking at, they're just like completely unhealable and you, you can see them in, in the landscape. Those are the things that, you know, I, I still have not photographed here, Mm -hmm. but I, you know, I pass and I see them and I, I've just, I'm just sitting with them right now. And I, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if that's the right approach because like image history, right? Like should, should I keep a, a different kind of like a visual record? Um, but those are the things that those things feel like, like the unspeakable, like, nope, you should not make that image. Nope. You should just like hold that thing, um, and sit with it until you know what to do. Uh, yeah, that that's, yeah, that's the tricky thing. And it's the thing about like not being a photographer because my impulse is like to think about things. <laughs> Not that photographers aren't thoughtful, but 
a photographer would be like, take the image and think about it later. You know, um, yeah. you don't have to show anybody, just take the image. And I'm like, no, I just want to think about it right, <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, might I suggest that you're actually a very good photographer then? <laughs> Thank uh, you. I'm going to tell them. <laughs> I'm going to tell them you said that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, for what it's for what it's worth. But um, I think that's like we talked about that too. And I I won't go too far into this because the work that I'm referring to isn't in the show, but um you had gone to Louisiana and, and taken some photographs recently and you were talking about whether or not you wanted to share them because they kind of they hold a lot of violence, even if they're sort of neutral or mm-hmm. sorry, neutral is the wrong word. Even if yeah. there's sort of photographs of cabins, you know, we know what those cabins were used for. And so, and so they sort of, they hold a lot of violence. And I think, yeah, there's, there's sort of so much at stake when you take an image, make an image and, um, and who you show it to, how it's received, will it will be received with the tenderness and care that it needs to be. And one of the things I was thinking about, because I think all of us photographers or you know, or not, like we feel the impulse to experience things through photographs on our, you know, on our phone, whatever, like, you know, you see something on the street, you start recording, you start taking pictures, you're at a museum, you're at a concert, you're doing the same. Um, And I was in Louisiana in the winter for Prospect, which is um, like a, I think it's a triennial. Triennial. Yeah. And um, it was amazing. I I was blown away and they had a whole series of works that were sort of documenting the history of um, hoodoo and voodoo practices um, in it, in the area in because it was based in New Orleans. And um, a lot of the materials they had on view, like I was, I didn't photograph for myself. I wish I had them because I'm really interested in them. But mm-hmm. one of the pieces in particular was, um, was a rosary that was buried with someone and it had been removed from that grave. Wow. And so they weren't able to return it because it, they didn't know who it had come from. Mm-hmm. And so this was something that no one should have ever seen because it belonged to someone when they passed away and they, they wanted it with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was like, you know, I'm like walking around the gallery, like snapping pictures to show my mom mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm up against like images or, or in this case, an object. And, and, you know, I was, I, it stopped me in my tracks, like, and I understood it in the context of the exhibition, the kind of like the story that they were sharing and there was other precious objects and they were treated with a lot of care. But just knowing that my measly little iPhone was not going to come in and interact with this mm-hmm. object. And I and I, I think the, the emotion feels kind of parallel to, to walking and, and seeing these things that are impacting you deeply and not sort of feeling like the moment is right to to capture them on your mm-hmm. camera mm-hmm. Um, yeah. oh wow that's big that's big I um I wonder do you so do do you regret not having those images or I don't know if that's the right phrasing but now that you like have not taken them if you could, would you take them? 
if you could go back, would you take them? No? I think so. I have the, like, I have, it. this sounds so corny, um, but I, <laughs> like, I have them in my heart. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I have them in my heart, like, in the way that, you know, and this maybe speaks to my, the way that I'm sort of interested in doing research where there's sort of um, these sort of impactful experiences that I have that shift shift the way I think or shift how I've been thinking about something and yeah. that being an instance where that happened. So it, it was sort of captured somehow by my body, but it, it was yeah. on my iPhone next to pictures of my cat. <laughs> oh, I mean, and that's, and that's it, you know, like, I think like that, that the sense of that still lives within you, like that feels like if someone experienced like something I made in that way, that would be like, that's it. You know, like that's penultimate thing because, you know, like the, the images can be really beautiful, but also um, not like, like touch you in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I feel like that that's it. And the surprise of having, them in your phone in a particular chronology where you can be like pleasantly looking at your cat and then this you know this other thing comes up um I think that it's kind of like why the way we the way we live with photography now is kind of kind of cool um you know it's a really different happenstance um like or like wait or order, I guess. Um, and I like, I kind of like that too. I, I don't, you know, I don't think about it as much, but I, like, I actually think that's kind of nice to, yeah. 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 And, you know, once again, there's no easy kind of directive, but it, it sort of pays to think hev- heavily, think hard about these things because, yeah, there's, there's so much meaning there and, and there's so much emotion that you don't even know you're experiencing sometimes, I think. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So I have a couple more questions. <laughs> um, These are great. You're like, you have such good questions. This is, and I, I, I want to be like generous back. Cause this is like really generous. <laughs> so I'm like, Oh, I need to. Yeah. Um, okay. Leave that in. No, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> don't, don't. Um, okay. I, th- okay. I have one sort of like potentially just like quick question, which is, um, you know, we're talking a lot about the Mississippi, mm-hmm. um, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your relationship to water, like, um, the Mississippi or just sort of in general, uh, I'll just leave it there because it sounds like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I'm like very into it. (laughs) So I, I, uh, I was talking to, and I think I have a healthy fear of water. I, I swim. I love to swim. And, um, I, decided I wanted to be a stronger swimmer last summer. It's like an offshoot, but I um, got with like one of our, a coach at one of the colleges to like teach me how to like develop. And I was like, oh, your fear of water may never go away. You live with it. Um, 
but it may never go away. And I think it's it's something that a friend of mine has been really pushing me to in all these like water-based projects and being like infinitely curious about water. She's like, you know, like a lot of people are afraid of water. And so like this might not entice them in the way that you think it will. <laughs> you think it will. So what are you going to do then? And um, she shout out, shout out to Shana Griffin, who's like this amazing, like sociologist, geographer, activist, human <laughs> in New Orleans. Um, but yeah, like, and I think that's, that's real, you know, like black folks here were like actively taught, not actively not taught to swim so that they couldn't use the waterways, which are infinite, um, to escape, you know? Uh, and I, uh, but I, I love, I love water and, and also have this like healthy, I think it's healthy (laughs) fear about it. Cause I know, you know, like I know what it can, I know what it can do. Um, and I know what, like, it sometimes it's not even the water is that you panic because because of your fear of water and that can be the thing that like can it it can kill you and so like i um i think yeah maybe that's uh, there's so much to say about that but i like i, I yeah i i'm into it <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i mean like I, I'm, I, I'll use this as like a moment to plug some programming that we've done recently, which is um, our 2020-2021 uh, writer in residence, Leticia Cosbert Miller. Um, she wrote uh, four fantastic essays about her relationship to water, and and she writes about her relationship to water, and then also Toni Morrison um, appears in a lot of her writing. Um, and we just published the compilation of the essays and it's called Swimming Up a Dark Tunnel. So um, if you, Tia, are interested, um, I will share a copy with you. But also, dear listener, <laughs> if this resonates with you, please, uh, there are copies available for purchase. <laughs> wow. I know good, I'm good. <laughs> good plug. That's a good plug. And yeah, please do share that with me. I I would love to read that. I love that. You yeah. know. I I love that. That's really, yeah, I'm excited to read that. And like, water is such a, you know, like, it's so, yeah, it's, it's just like, it's, it's political, you know, because like having access to it can like literally change your life, you know? I, uh, that's, and we're, we're made of water and we can dehydrate ourselves. Like, I'm like working this is a whole thing. I'm working out with somebody right now who's like a a, a bodybuilder. Oh, wow. And like, the I think like the day before their competition, they dehydrate themselves so that their muscles show more. Fascinating. 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 It's, it's like fascinating stuff. And it's that water does that to you. Water fills out your tissue and, you know, <laughs> Like it keeps it it helps your brain function and like like your muscles function. Like water is everything. Like yeah, like it's kind of a um, it's fascinating. I'm in. I'm into it. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
gosh, um, no one could see my face what, while I was reacting to the. <laughs> I saw it. I That's saw it. Stunned. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Um, so the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, we're talking about the river as a kind of carceral landscape, as water being a carceral landscape. And one of the things that appear in the exhibition is a riverboat. And so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the riverboat as this other conduit uh, of carcerality. I mean, the slave ship is maybe a more recognizable symbol, depending on your kind of <laughs> familiarity with the subject. But I um I know the riverboat sort of appears in this in this exhibition. So I was hoping we could yeah. talk a little bit. Yeah, like those things are fascinating. And once someone and I I, I'm, I still don't know the full answer to this. Someone asked, was um, was the riverboat, the steamboat, like the paddle wheel version of that, was that a particularly American phenomenon? And I think that paddle wheel riverboat thing might be. I don't know the answer to that, but like that question is fascinating to me because like the iconography of it is carried into places that don't have the the it, it it was basically like an 18 wheeler of its time like those things toted barges of sugar you know bananas <laughs> coming in from other places like outside of the US they toted cotton you know like they were like the, it was a part of the river as a highway and like they did a lot of 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 labor for the river and um certainly other you know cities other parts of the world have histories of using rivers in that way but the, as an icon you know they show up in lakes as entertainment i was i was literally on the lake here uh, two weekends ago and saw one. And I was like, there's no need for <laughs> that other than as this aesthetic iconography of the past. You know, this is just entertainment. And there's this, a, a friend shared with me um, this spring when the final four was happening. I think it was the final four. Part of it was in New Orleans. And so you had like Spike Lee and Charles Barkley in their like white <laughs> suits on a riverboat. <laughs> oh, excuse me. It was actually here. It was here. It wasn't in New Orleans. It was here. And like I um like that 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 like symbol is still still a part of, you know, I I think it's similar to like idyllic plantation scenes that people still do these balls and you know cotillions at plantation or plantation weddings are like apparently still a thing <laughs> and so like I think that iconography is a part of you know Americana that's like a tap it's attached to some really seditious stuff we have them here um, even uh, in the on the upper river, and that the utility of them has been long gone. But iconography is important. I read um, when I was like starting to work on this. I, I read um, William Wells Brown's autobiography, which is a slave narrative, 
Um, and he worked as a river worker. And it was after reading that, I started learning like, that a lot of Black folks were sold out to um, ports in order to work the riverboats to both like take things off and put things on. And he talked in that in his autobiography about things he witnessed. And, and that same, you know, riverboat becomes how he escapes eventually. Um, because like there, the water or like Tiffany, Tiffany Thobo King calls it the shoal. Um, is this place where things transform? Land becomes water, water becomes land. And that like sticky zone gets real slippery so yeah. that, you know, a free person can be, be mistaken for an enslaved person and an enslaved person can slip away as a free person because like labor gets muggy. Who has leased you out to who? Um, and for what and for how long, you know, all of those like um, ways that the economy of the water had to function through human power. And that created this messy, messy system that allowed some people to slip through, you know, and and um, emancipate themselves. And so I, uh, that riverboat though, I I had that, this, and this is the thing about speed and time. Like I had, I, I, I make those little models. And then last summer I had that model. I think I built that one during the, during the pandemic in 2020. Like when things first got started, I started like shipbuilding. <laughs> and so, and so like I, um. I had had it. And then last summer I took my my mom was visiting and I was like, oh, I'm going to take her on the on the riverboat because I'm curious, you know, like. What do they do? Like people go to this thing every day. What do they do? There's a season pass for it if you want. And so like we went on it. And the first voice that came out was um, the American writer Mark Twain. <laughs> and so like I then I came home and like I tagged it like the boat <laughs> that that's where the tag came from but a part of that was like listening to Mark Twain narrate the river was just obscene particularly here because you have black and native folks who helped settlers navigate the river like literally yeah <laughs> like they didn't know where the hell they were going <laughs> part of this was new france you know like it wasn't you know like they were crossing all kinds of borders that they had no clue and like i i was like why is this, this is perverse like they're starting with mark twain and then it was like of course it's like a twangy terrible southern accent at that and i was like no, this is <laughs> yeah, and so it's kind of it's kind of funny, and it's also like, oh, of course, of course, they would start with Mark Twain because that is the sort of settled, also the settled iconography of the nation. But like, yeah. this dude knows the river, and it's like, no, not but for Native people and Black folks. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Um, this, thank you so much. <laughs> that's that's the best story. But okay. <laughs> also, I have a story for you. That please, is please. Um, okay, so um, when I was in my undergrad, like in my early twenties, um, I went to a University of Toronto, which is in Toronto, mm-hmm. uh, and I took a nineteenth-century American literature class, and mm-hmm. we read one of the texts. We read was Huckleberry Finn. Of course. <laughs> so, um, you know, we we learned about Mark Twain's use of like the vernacular language and he would spell things kind of in the vernacular. And so my t- professor asked the class um, to read out passages from the book to get a sense of how the vernacular sounded. Wow. And so I was the only Black person in the class. Um and so I asked that we not actually say the N-word because it was written mm-hmm. every second line, basically. Yeah. Every time you said Jim's name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so not only did my professor say, like, he refused my request, but absolutely no one in the class was on my side. So, like, everyone took their turn to read and everyone said it when it when it appeared in the book. And at the end of the class, one student went so far as to say that he had been called bad names before and it was no big deal and I needed to be less sensitive. So in conclusion, fuck Mark Twain. (laughs) (laughs) And also fuck the professor. And I honestly can't remember his name. So like that's enough. And I (laughs) great. (laughs) <laughs> great don't even worry about remembering that professor's name I think that they're terrible and I hope that they're not teaching anymore <laughs> I hope they get purged no oh, and I hope they hear this because that is truly a terrible thing to have done and probably continued to do because they kept teaching that book I'm yeah, sure so. I'm so sorry that happened to you and fuck Mark Twain like Anyway, that was probably, I was trying to think what year that would have been, like 2016, 2017. At least, I figured it was, I figured it was not the 90s. No. <laughs> I figured that much. It was yeah. recent. Um. Anyway, yeah, that, I kind of had a recovered memory uh, and I thought. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you for telling me that. I actually feel like. Someone else told me a Mark Twain. I feel like I need, like, I need to like start cataloging these too. Like, you know, because yeah. like, unfortunately, I'm I'm surprised that, but it's it's such canonical American literature. Like, I don't think it'll ever go away. But like, even like, there's like a this like public television like like a learning show for kids that had this little dog and they reenacted the the um the adventures of Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer with the little dog like the little dog was a fin and i'm like this is a little lime thieving child like <laughs> <laughs> like and like it completely obliterated Jim's story and it made everything so much more gentle than I'm like this actually was you know I I was like I'm I, and 
that existed as another way to like um, narrativize for children the canonical American yeah story. And so I I I, I uh, yeah like uh, that's that's wild. That's wild. Yeah, 2016 and still, you know, and Canada, you know, like that. That's what I mean. Like those things, like they just, they bloom and and it, it becomes like, oh, this is, you know, of all the things that you could have read. And I'm again, and this is me being like, I'm not a literate, you know, I'm not like a English literature person. But I have my critiques and I feel like they're valid. <laughs> and I feel like your like request was more than valid. Yeah. I'm actually thinking back. I actually um am quite surprised I said anything because it's it it's not easy. Like, and I I can't believe I did, but I did say it because I think I was so troubled because we had been reading it at home and I was like, oh God. Um <laughs> mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. anyway, so I was not heard. <laughs> Yeah, it's, 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 um, I'm glad that's I could. Hear hard. This. <laughs> I'm so glad you did. I mean, and like, just that's hard. Like you're the only like black student in the class and that's, you know, the, what you're reading and, and everybody just like wants to like live in the ecstatic joy of saying the N word. Like why? Yeah. Like, why? yeah, that's it. It You summed it up really well. Like, that's what it felt like. Everyone was like, I want my turn. <laughs> and it's like, what is, I, I don't know. People don't think about their, the things that drive them, which is why you should have good teachers who can, you know, help yeah. you do that. Like, uh, yeah. I'm so sorry that happened. And also thank you for sharing that because that's, that's wild. Um, so actually this, this conversation is very cathartic talking about, like when you <laughs> mentioned Mark Twain, I was like, oh, I'm going to mention it. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. But yeah, so talking it so talking about like good teachers, education, this sort of brings me to my last question, which is a bit of shifting shifting uh, tone, I guess. This season for the podcast, I'm trying to draw a link through our podcast this season around how to ask a question. Uh, so for me, it's an inquiry that speaks to a larger investigation into what good criticism looks like and also how it connects with labor practices. Um, so I'm not being a critical thinker when I'm, at, I'm tired, I'm not engaging properly when I'm overworked, and I'm interested in questions of capacity and labor um, because great conversations don't come out of nowhere. So for you, Tia, like as an artist and also as an educator, um, I'm really curious about how you manage your own workload and ability to be present with various projects. Wow. What a good question. Can I borrow that? I'm going to answer, but can I borrow that? Like, that is such a good question. Yeah, for sure. Wow. I've actually been sitting with this a lot recently because I have, I think we're always at our best when we are like, of course, like rested and not stressed out. And, you know, have had enough to eat. (laughs) But like rarely lately, it feels like I can have all those things at the same time. And so like I've been trying to be attentive to when I'm not being a good, like 
intellectual collaborator. And there's something, you know, just to like be transparent, like we all want to feel smart for lack of, you know, a better word. Like we just, we want to feel like the people we're engaging with take us serious as like thoughtful, educated, whatever that education is. But like you, we're, we're having a conversation. So, you know, like you should have some faith that I, I know things. Right. And, and I think that, um, the best conversations, collaborations, and like work that I've done has been when you're able to like be mutual, you know, I think you're great and smart and yeah, some days will be hard, but I can trust that you think I'm great and smart and we can talk through it. And I think um, the things that have felt challenging lately are coming out of that when it feels like, oh, you don't. <laughs> There's something in this that does not feel like mutuality and respect. And I don't always, I'm, you know, honestly, not always clear whether it is actually coming from the other person or it's me in an insecurity, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm constantly, constantly, constantly trying to check, like, am I being insecure or is this person like mansplaining something to me? <laughs> you know, that like, am I being insecure or has this person been talking for the last six minutes and no one else has said anything? Do I need to say something right now? Or am I just frustrated that they won't give a pause for, you know, me or someone else to say something? I I honestly have been sitting with that. I, I think it's good for everybody to know, to have felt what it's like to be at your best, to know what it feels like to be in like a joyful, even if it's hard. Because the heart, like the hard part is a part of that joy that, ooh, we're having a hard conversation right now, but everybody's being honest and we're going to leave today and have learned some things. I know what that feels like. And so when things don't feel like that, when it's like, this is just hard and I don't like, it's hard, to, it's hard to show up to it. It's hard to make space to think about it. It's hard to like want to contribute to somebody else's like good work you know it's a, it's just important to observe and like I, I don't I'm, I'm literally sitting in this right now and like I don't know yet how to resolve it but those end up being the questions that I ask is like this feels really different from the time I did work with this group of people why does this feel different why is this so hard am I being insecure is this like a part of my like stuff do is this for me to deal with how do I you know how do you voice this to someone and like not have it turn and you know not leave them bleeding on the floor as a friend said to me you know and so I I don't know will you ask that again though because like that's such a good oh that's such a good question yeah I think um I think it'll be cool to ask like all of our guests 
that yes. question and sort of see what the the consensus is if there is one but yeah I, I love like your kind of emphasis on collaboration and also on observation like that kind of checking in with yourself to say like is this me or is this situation weird and and like I know from personal experience, I don't always like kill it in those moments. Like I usually, um, I might misread it and, and overreact, but I think like, it's a, it's a good practice to just be checking in with yourself and like realize that there are multiple options for the scenario and maybe choosing the path that you can like handle best at the moment. So if it's just sort of like thinking externally about the situation or if it's speaking up, like, um, you know, I think both require, you know, reflection and effort and figuring out sort of like what the best course of action is. So yeah, I think that's such an awesome answer. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I, I, let me say one last thing, like, cause you said, you said like, like sometimes, you, you know, you're not like managing it the best or, or you overreact. And like, I hope in, you know, in those situations, if if everybody is coming in with the like same goal at heart, that there's room, you know, that there's room for you to be like really upset, <laughs> you know, like because this is the thing I've seen. I've seen that at, with me and other Black women, our anger is off-putting. I've seen other people be able to use their anxiety, their like fragility mm-hmm. and draw compassion. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's okay. I don't think that should, I don't think like that should be like the idea of overreaction. Cause like, I'm like, no, this upsetting. <laughs> like it's upsetting. Like when you have somebody sort of like not, not treat you like the, the smart integrity filled you know human being that you are that's upsetting or to just like be dismissed and and i've what i've absolutely witnessed is that like some people can um use fragility like if you if you um change your tone with me i'm gonna break yeah i am not that i'm not that like but I also don't think like my, you know, <laughs> my reactions should be like bar should bar me from a conversation either. And like, why does one thing that is so like messed up and 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 gendered? Like, why does like being fragile draw compassion in the same situation when like anger and frustration? are like no now we're not, we're not going to deal with you anymore no yeah, yeah. <laughs> no i totally agree it's like snaps <laughs> <laughs> and i and you know i said it before and it's been recorded i said it before um in like talks that i've done in the past like i like anger i don't mind anger it's an it's an emotion that we all feel and it can be expressed i mean there are like positive and negative ways that it can be expressed and the goal is not to abuse others but it like if it's an expression of an honest frustration then I do welcome it at the table and you know we can work with it um and yeah I think that's maybe a really good (laughs) lesson to land on um thank you 
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, And it's been such a pleasure to speak with you and engage with your practice. And I'm so honored you've agreed to work with us. Um, I'm so excited by your work and I'm so happy that it's coming to Gallery 44. Um, So please, everyone, uh, T.A. Simone Gardner's exhibition, Dark and Perfect Memories, will be at Gallery 44 from September 9th to October 15th. So that's it. What did you think? Drop us a line with your thoughts on today's pod. You can reach me at Lillian at gallery44.org or follow us on Instagram at gallery44photo. This podcast was written, edited, and presented by Lillian O'Brien Davis. That's me. Co-produced with Alana Trapicante, edited by Aaron Hutchinson, and special thanks to Respectful Child for the Sweet Tunes. We acknowledge the support of the Canada Council for the Arts. Talk to you next time.